Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Greetings, and we are here at Resistance Recovery Book Club. Um, this is session number eight, or book number eight, and it's something that I've been looking forward to doing for a long, long time, but I feel like I didn't have the right uh, dialogue partner until I became acquainted with the work of Michael Martin. And so we are going to discuss Meditations on the Tarot. A journey into Christian Hermeticism. Well, it's the same one I have. Is it really? <laughs> oh, wow. And we're both all beat up. Yeah. It is beat up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, mine's literally got like tape on the side and everything else. Yep. That's wild. Me too. <laughs> um, so just, I guess, by way of beginning, um, how'd you, how and when and under what circumstances did you get acquainted with this? text? Uh, I don't precisely remember, but I, um, I had to be 23, 24, and I wandered it. I was at this bookstore where they sold stuff like that, books by Rudolf Steiner, uh, and I can't remember. I got into conversation, conversation with somebody. Maybe it was about the rosary. And he said, do you know about Topper? I said, no. So, and he showed me this book. He said, you gotta get this book. And uh, it was really an expensive book. I mean, back in 85, 86 or whatever I read it, it was a $30, $40 book, which was outrageous for a book in those days. So I had to save my money. <laughs> so, so I had to wait for a good payday. And then I finally bought the book and I started reading it and I realized, A, how ill-educated I really was because there was, I thought I had read a lot. I had not read anything. And, and secondly, I realized that the, there were more rooms in the Catholic, Catholic Church than I thought. So it kind of opened up my um, imagination to what it means to be Catholic, for instance. Because at the time, I was not... I mean, I still, you know, culturally, I was still pretty culturally Catholic, but I had stopped going to church when I was 18. And this, this book kind of nudged me back toward, toward, toward the institutional church. What, um, what, what do you think did prepare you for this book? I mean, I was thinking that very same question that I, I was pretty, pretty young and limited, but there were a handful of things that I thought you know, made it, made it so I could access the book. Was it Steiner or was it other stuff too, or? Uh, Steiner, uh, but also, I mean, yeah, coming from a Catholic background. Right. Who, who, you know, who, who was a, about that far from going to seminary when I was 15. Uh, thank God that 
that didn't happen. But uh, so those two things, I was interested in tarot. I was, you know, kind of interested in astrology and stuff like this. Um, and I, and I, but I was also even more interested in mysticism, you know, the, this idea that people could experience God on a, you know, regular basis through prayer. And, I, you know, and I didn't really know what prayer was, I think, at that time. Not really. So a lot of these figures in the book, the Catholic figures, were not unfamiliar to you by name, but you didn't really have a lot of acquaintance with them? Well, I, I, went, you know, I went to Catholic school. So, you know, I'd heard about Aquinas. I don't think we ever read Aquinas in school. We never, you know, I'd heard about John of the Cross, never read him. Heard about Teresa of Avila, never read her. You know, so what, the, what, one of the great things about uh, encountering this book is it directed me to, into, you know, at one point I wanted to build a library of all the books mentioned in, in, in Meditations on the Tarot. And, and I made, I've, I've I made some pretty good headway, but it's a lot of books. Oh, it's a right? lot of, some are in French. But you and, can... they are in French. And, uh, and I was lucky, you know, one of the things that was interesting, you know, one of the people he mentions is uh, Joseph Jean Pelletan. He mentions him quite a, quite a bit. Uh, and I knew about him because when I was 18 or so, there was a, there was a show at the Detroit Institute of Arts on symbolist painting. Oh, well. And... And, and so I, I bought a book, which I still have someplace. Uh, and I was, you know, at the time I was a young poet and musician. And so the, the, the symbolist just kind of inspired me about not only uh, art, but what the relationship of religion to art could be, right? So that was getting inspired. And, and uh, Peladon was, was this important figure in, in that, that time period. I mean, he was an empresario. He was a kind of um, radical traditionalist in a way, and uh, and he was unavailable. And I think he might be just getting to be available in English now. Hmm. Very few of his books have been translated into English. I you can get a lot of them. At least I did. I have a have a file on my computer of uh, PDF versions you can get from archive.org. I think it was. Maybe it was Google. So a lot of his books, but if you if you read French, you can find them that way. And uh, I, you know, super fascinating figure. And here he shows up almost right away in Tomberg. You know, and uh, so that so I, that was an, another thread that kind of drew me into this book. You know, and, and I, I, at the time, I you know, I was interested in, but no expert at Rudolf Steiner. Right. I, I mean, I was 24. I just started reading Steiner. Right. Well, I guess to kind of match you a little bit, I'll just say <laughs> things about what I was when I read this book. I was, um, I was in the early stages of drug addiction, um, and I'd gotten in a lot of trouble, and my... Um, my response to getting in trouble was to flee where I was living. <laughs> and literally as I was, you know, I took my, my uh, tax return and I got a one-way ticket from Washington to Colorado. 
And as I was leaving, I, I ran into this guy in a cafe and he puts this book in my face, this guy I chatted with. He goes, you got to read this. And, and then, you know, I'm amazed just by perusing it. And then he snatches it from me and says, you can't borrow it. And so I went to Colorado and in Boulder, I ran into the book. I'm not Catholic, but I had been raised Methodist. So there's, you know, that was helpful. Um, I had had a teacher who was actually, I later learned, was quite famous, Plato scholar. So that gave me some footing. Um, read a lot of Gurdjieff at the time, or secondary texts, and he's critical of them. So there's that. But I think it was me being kind of like feeling guilty or, you know, like remorseful. I think that opened me to this book in a way that wouldn't have been otherwise. That being said, can you, can we start looking at what was the experience of reading the book for you? The first time? Yeah. Uh, it was, it was mind blowing is what it was, you know, I, you know, for this kid who went through Catholic school all the way, to, to read this text where, you know, he's talking about alchemy and Rosicrucianism and, you know, astrology and opening it up to something that's not, you know, some kind of superficial occultism, but has genuine philosophical and theological depth to it. You know, it was like, it was an absolute inspiration. I mean, I'll show you the first four letters, right? You got concentration, you know, you know, meditation, sacred magic, gnosis, and uh, just, I mean, that just, you know, it really, it put me, uh, it, it started me, and I realize this now, I mean, I've read the book, I don't know how many times, but I'm just preparing for, for today, and I'm looking through my, my book, and it's, I think just about every sentence in the book is underlined at this point, <laughs> and uh and I even, I'll show you this, it's kind of funny. So maybe the fourth or fifth, maybe sixth time I read the book, it's probably, I think I had children already, so it's probably the early nineties. I decided I would color all the cards. Nice. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, and there, there have been times when, when I was giving lectures on this and I taught a class at the university on this book and, uh, it had so many post-its and it has a few today just for today's, but it had hundreds of color-coded post-its according, you know, sociology was red, you know, whatever color, astrology was green. It was, it was crazy, but, but it, what happened though, it opened up my mind to, to uh, what is possible. And I, this idea of hermeticism, which I hadn't really heard about, mm. you know, which made intrigued me, and and I and I and I think what this book does is it stands in that tradition of Renaissance Christianity mm -hmm. or Renaissance Catholicism mm -hmm. uh, in the in the tradition of Ficino and uh, uh, Pico, people like this, you know, that which to me, you know, now that I have a PhD in Renaissance literature. You know, to me, that moment in Italian in the Italian Renaissance was kind of like this beautiful um, 
um, synthesis of the Christian, Jewish, and uh, the, the pagan philosophy, but also with Hermeticism going back to, to, to the Hermes Trismegistus. You know, so, and in fact, it's, I think it's the Ravenna, one of the cathedrals, Cambridge Cathedral, there's actually a mosaic of Hermes. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, so he was basically honorary saint in the Catholic Church in some, yeah. some quarters. And I think this book stands in that tradition. I think that's right. I don't think I would have had any way to appreciate that when I read it. Um, you know, when I read it, I don't, I, I, I sort of lack the language to explain what happens, but it felt as though, like I can get echoes of this reading it in preparation for today. It felt as though that every card, every meditation, every spiritual exercise somehow instantiated the reality of the exercise in my consciousness in such a way that my, my perception and interaction with the world was illuminated. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, and I was, I had no one to talk to about this, you know, so I'm just sort of going through this experience. And, um, I guess we could get a little thematic. I mean, one of the things that really jumped out in the first reading was he starts talking about the nature of the heart and the need to link head and heart and all these wonderful themes. But he says that the heart is emollient. And of course, at the time I had to look the word up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> And, and what, what was really wild was I, um, I was living with a couple who I'd been like their best man a few years before, and the marriage fell apart in front of my eyes. And I will actually come home one day and she's leaving him and he's a complete basket case. And I'm like 24 years old with, you know, no skill sets to meet somebody in that kind of pain. And yet the book just seemed to, you know, I became somebody that I'd never known before. And at the end of it, but when I left six months later, he actually said to me, he said, uh, and he didn't, you know, he didn't know the book. He said, it was as though you became really, really, really sincere. Hmm. And I was just like, and for me, the book will, I will have, I've really messed with the calendar For about eight months, I lived in that. I lived in that for months and months after I read The Last Trump. And it was, um, to this day, I don't know what to make of it because when it ended, it ended very abruptly. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of pined for the experience since then. And I think I was just, I, I was unprepared for the experience and I was unprepared for its ending. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But did you have that sense of elevated consciousness and awareness? I, yeah, I, I, I totally identify with that because I really think the attentive reading of these exercises, I mean, it really is a spiritual exercise for the reader. You know, you're participating in Tom Berg's spiritual exercise as you read through it. You know, you're 
kind of uh, drawing on his erudition and his, his broad experience in, you know, Eastern and Western traditions. But even more, I mean, you, it, for me anyway, it was about as close as you can get to, his, to an Ignatian spiritual uh, exercise without doing a spirit without doing an Ignatian spiritual it's hermetic spiritual exercise yeah. and that's what that was my experience as well I mean and then I try to read other things and you know <laughs> nothing worked the same way you know and there was this book worked on my soul in a way that very few books have do you have other books that are in the same league because I know uh, <laughs> Probably, maybe, I don't know. Um, did I have any, <clears throat> I guess the book has to arrive at the right time. I guess for poetry, you know, poetry. What, what I get through poetry is pretty close to what, I, you know, depending on the poem, right? Uh, very close to what I got through this book. And that's why I, when I wrote The Submerged Reality, that's the subtitle is sociology and the turn to a poetic metaphysics. It's, and, and that's what I, I think a lot of that, uh, you know, kind of enzyme, if you want, if you will, began when I read this book when I was 24. It kinda, and I didn't, I didn't publish the Submerged Reality or really any book till I was 50, you know? And I, and reading through uh, to prepare for today, I was noticing some things in the Magician Letter, for instance that uh, I really, you know, the, I, the thing about keeping silent. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't, I felt like, you know, I, I looking back, I felt like I didn't have anything to say because I wasn't ready to say it. Right. I had, it had to, you know, I had all these ideas, of course, and as everybody does, but I really needed to let them age. And I needed to let the, the ferment work. I mean, here's an analogy, right? So uh, we live on a farm and we have a cow and we have, we get seven gallons of milk a day. We sell some of the milk, but you know, so you got to do something with all that milk. So I decided to start making hard cheeses. So I'm making cheddar cheese. Well, you got to let that, you got to let it do its work. You can't rush it, you know, or Parmesan. Parmesan takes six to 12 years. Whoa. So you have to let it, ha you have to let it work. And I think I had to let this book and everything else work on me for 25 years. Well, maybe I really speak out of it. Maybe it would be good then to talk a little bit about the way the magician talks about silence, because I think that I did not experience silence until I got to that little section where he talks about the zone of silence and breathing silence. And I think I actually had an experience of that. And like you, I mean, I, I would identify as a contemplative now, <laughs> you know, 30 odd years later, but yeah. I was not then. So maybe a little something about the role of silence plays in all of this. Yeah. I had to learn how to be silent. Right. And the funny thing for me, I don't know if this is your case, and I have nine children too, right? So, and, and that's why when we, we started to do this, this uh, interview, I was in a different room because there's never silence in my house. And I was trying to find silence, find a silent place. And, 
but you, I've, I've discovered that you know, silence is something you have to cultivate. And I don't mean just meditative silence, which that's part of it, but when he talks about concentration um, and because of the circumstances of my life and it's, you know, especially when I was in my twenties, it was nuts. It was crazy, busy time. And I, who wants to be in their twenties again? Nobody. Uh, but I, I, I was, you know, trying to meditate then and trying to do those things I thought you were supposed to do. But even that, you know, it took years where, like he, he says in the, in the letter of the magician, turning every task into a, a spiritual exercise, which is kind of what, what very much drew me into poetry and farming and all the, you know, teaching in a way is you can turn those things into spiritual exercises and you, you develop the powers of concentration that you, you kind of um, foster uh, a silent core. And I am not, not, you know, I come from a loud Irish family. And, but my wife says, you know, when I, when I talk about my brother and my sisters, she, my wife describes me as the quiet one and I'm so not quiet, but, but I have over the, over the years. And as it started with this book, trying to inculcate the lessons there where I've had to, to learn how to do it within the context of the life I have been given, mm -hmm. which took years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of, my time with Robert Sardello affected something similar to be able to find silence in the midst of anything, which was always working with the heart. Um, there's this place in the book. Now, of course I should have it marked where, so Tom Berg will start talking about uh, the will. And there's a place in the book where, I don't know, it might be force or something where he says, that the will should never be passive. It's by its very nature active. And it can also be um, a, a tool of perception. And he says that initially, this will involve a kind of a silencing of everything. I think specifically the silencing of the imagination and the silencing of the intellect. And then he makes this stunning theological move where he's saying, Really, this is the grace of faith to be in that place where you're, you know, the, the time current from the future is coming at you. And then he says, maybe very gradually, the thought and the imagination can become contemporaneous with the will. Um, I find that completely compelling. And I would imagine a poet would just kind of get that. Yeah. Um, and that's in, in, I mean, for me, farming and poetry and music are all part of the same cloth because there's a, you know, I tell, and it's amazing when I have college students, how few of them play musical instruments these days. Right. You know, so because there's a there's a place with with 
whether it's whatever kind of artistic domain it happens to be, whether fine arts or the practical arts, you know, you get to a place where um, you're you're just present to it, right? You're not you don't have to think about it. You're present to it. So if you're playing the guitar, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I improvise uh, playing the guitar, my wife noticed this a long time ago, but then a friend of mine noticed it too. She said, you know what? When you're just improvising on the guitar, you don't look the same anymore. Your face changes. Mm-hmm. Because you get into that pr- presence, mm-hmm. that con- it's a contemplative presence, I would call it which is you know, what Tom Briggs says, right? It's, it's without effort, mm-hmm. without effort. Look at a carpenter, a really good carpenter. I'm a really bad carpenter, but you look at a really good carpenter, they're present. I mean, if they have to think about what they're doing, they're gonna cut their finger or something, yeah. right? Right. But it's because the tool becomes a part of them, you know? And, and it's, that's why from, I don't know about you, but for me, when I see somebody who really knows what they're doing, whether it's with auto mechanics or, or woodworking, it just it's just such a delight to watch them in that space because, you know, and this is why you know, it's all it's it's a uh, it's there for all of us. It's not necessarily for these kind of spiritually advanced people like or intellectually advanced people like Valentin Tomberg or, or something. It's something available to everybody. Yeah. It's part of being human. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yet, and this is something that I think is probably very counter right now. That's another thing about reading this book. Just the five years since I last read it, given the cultural shifts we've gone through in those five years, there's some things yeah. that really jumped out that didn't before. And one of the things that jumped out is he said, what you just described, you know, the artist being present, to the poem that's coming or whatever it might be, it's never arbitrary. And that, that to me sounds, feels like one of the most, you know, counter cultural moves Tomberg makes. He's saying, no, it's, it can't be arbitrary. The human being has the capacity to act arbitrarily, but there's actually something that's very, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, very lawful going on there. And do, and that seems to go against this ethos we have now where you can be whatever you want to be, whenever you want to be it, basically by declaration or fiat, mm-hmm. and no regard to anything, you know, we're trying to cancel the word lawful, really. Um, yeah. Well, cancel the word nature, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's what, and I think that this, and, and I would call this the hermetic path, right? This hermetic path, and this, and well, and, and I didn't discover this till really much later when I was doing doctoral work on uh, Thomas and Henry Vaughan, uh, the metaphysical poet, and uh, Henry and Thomas, who was an alchemist and Anglican priest. Uh, and, and, and Thomas actually wrote the foreword to the first tra- English translation of uh, the two Rosicrucian manifestos. Mm. And, uh, and what I noticed is um, that idea of, and he talks about it right away in 
Meditations of Tarot, of the union of religion, art, and science. It's so important, and Goethe picked up on this as well. Rudolf Steiner picked up, up on it. But this is goes back to the Rosicrucian ethos, back of the early 17th century. And uh, the Vaughn brothers were doing that. And what that entails, especially if you read the poetry of, of Henry Vaughn, is uh, it's, and I describe it in my very first book, uh, Religion and the Encounter with God in Post-Reformation England, that uh, for Henry Vaughn, you know, the way to kind of a holistic understanding of, of yourself and the world and God is through this uh, intertwined relationship of nature, scripture, and the self, you know? Uh, so, and, and that's, that's something that's so foreign to to postmodern ethos right now, right? It's it's the it's the farthest thing, you know. Um, you know, animal, I I spend all my days with with animals, and trust me, trust me. There's there's a big difference according to what gender they're born in, right? And you have to you have to work with that. You know, you can't pretend it does you don't milk a you don't uh, milk a bowl <laughs> you know so yeah i mean it's just, and it's this idea of living in accord with nature and with god i mean that's that that sounds so foreign to today's ethos sure does and that that working with that really jumps out because that is you know when you read this book, you have a strong sense. And he's always reminding you that, you know, it's not just you reading a book by him. You're in the presence of beings that are in concert. And, and, and you have that such a strong sense of that reading the book. You know, yeah. elementals and angels and the dead and the saints and just, just remarkable. Well, and... and well, I think that's that idea of, you know, and he's, I think he says that in the, in the introduction, right? You're calling these, this is not just an exercise in erudition, but we're calling forth the masters of, of the tradition because they are present to us. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, that's, I wrote a, in my book, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Incarnation of the Poetic Word. Uh, the first chapter is about an agapeic reading, right? toward an archaic criticism. And uh, the philosopher William Desmond talks about this. And it's, you know, when you're present to a text, and I'm, I'm talking about, in, in that case, about poetry or other kinds of texts, you're not just in the present of, presence of words, you're in presence of a being, mm -hmm. whoever wrote it and who's ever invoked in it. And if we talked about this before, but, you know, the the philosopher and mystic Simone Weil, you know, her experience of George Herbert's poem, Love, where, and she wrote in a letter to a, a, a priest that, you know, she learned this poem and she translated it into French. And every time she had a migraine, she would start to recite the words to herself almost in, as, a, as a kind of prayer. And she said to him, it was during one of these recitations, as I told you before, that Christ himself came down and took possession of me. 
So I think, you know, depending, you know, I always tell people, my kids, students, said what you read affects you spiritually, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, so if you read things that are, that are, that are rotten for you, like rotten spiritually for you, it's going to have a, a physical effect, you know, but if you read things that are spiritually nourishing for you, it, they're it likewise have, have an effect. And Topper talked about this in, um, like, gosh, 2000. So it was late 1990s. So I was doing my master's degree at a Jesuit university. And I wanted to do it on meditations on the tarot. Or I wanted to do it on Tomberg. And I was trying, you know, I didn't know German. Uh, know only a little bit of French. Didn't, I wanted to learn Russian. Uh, <clears throat> but I, so in the process of that, I don't know how it happened, but I, um, somehow got Robert Powell's phone number, the translator of the book. And he was in Germany at the time. And this is before cell phones. <laughs> so, so I called Robert and he called me back because I didn't, I didn't catch him. We had a long conversation and he told me, you know, uh, that when he was reading this book, somebody gave him the book when he was studying Eurythmy in, in Switzerland. And somebody gave him the, the manuscript of it and said, you're the one who needs to translate this to English. And he was not Catholic at the time. And he's reading this book. And he said, and he told me he started to have these powerful inner experiences that, you know, that changed him. And he felt he, he had to enter the Catholic church, which he did when he was in Switzerland. Um, years later, I talked to him again. He was in California at that time. And we were talking about uh, there's this book, uh, what's it called by Prokofiev, The Case of Valentin Tomberg, yep. which is the, a poisonous little tract. Uh, and Robert said, you know, I told him I had, I had seen it and it's really a hit hatchet job on Robert and on Tomberg. And, uh, and, and Robert said, yes, well, you know, people, a lot of people don't understand then that when you read these, these kinds of texts, that there are spiritual beings attached to them. And then you're entering into their that space. Yeah, that's right. For the record, uh, Robert McDermott once tried to facilitate a debate about the text between Prokofiev and Powell, and Prokofiev declines. <laughs> Jerry. Um, so he, you know, so you've got this picture of the silencing of the will, the coming into relationship to something spiritual by virtue of that, the, the leaving behind, at least for a time, the imagination and the, and the intellect, and that that's not arbitrary. And then he has a whole card devoted to the human being's capacity to be arbitrary. And Seeing how you colored it, will you open up to the devil card? I just wanted to well, show it to the audience real quick. Okay, doke. <laughs> the one, the one with no epigraph. Yeah, really, it has no epigraph. I didn't realize that. It's the only one. So, can you just show us the image? Oh yeah, my, my coloring job. Yeah, 
So what, what Tom Bird says is you've got this figure, this demonic figure, the devil, who is um, androgynous. And then around his neck there are these cords, and then are these two smaller figures to his right and to his left. And he says, first looking at the card, you would think that this demonic being is actually dragging these folks about. But he says he starts unpacking the card. He says that those, those two beings are, uh, does he say the will and the imagination? I think he says the will and the imagination, two human so. faculties that can actually create a third. Yeah. Even, and to which they will be um, subjected, although that being is in their creation. So he's not talking about objective evil beings. He's what he calls objective. He's talking about egregores. Right. The generation of a demon. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and he does not really underplay the sort of universality of that or the human capacity to do that. In a way, I feel like he's saying, you're inevitably going to do this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Groups inevitably do it, even the smallest groups. It's danger. I mean, I don't. It's. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> you know. I mean, like the place I most experienced the egregore was then in the English department meeting, <laughs> faculty meeting. Well, you you just feel that there are things you're not allowed to say, and what is it that's making you telling you that's the egregore, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in its extreme forms, it will lead to a kind of doubling where not only you inhibited about saying something or doing something, you actually say and do things that are completely foreign to you. Yeah. You know, like people talk about how many ordinary Germans became Nazis. Exactly. It's how brainwashing happens. Mm-hmm. Right? We're experiencing a lot of that these days, aren't we? Oh, yeah. In spades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says that there's the egregore that we um, that we create and he has this little throwaway line where he even says that the human capacity to do this stuff can create these kind of phantasms that are they're not necessarily unreal they're just not uh, what's the word? Well, anyway, living in a way, yeah. Yeah, he even says it about. <clears throat> uh, he makes this little throwaway line about aliens. He says, you know, he's saying, well, there, you know, the human being's imagination can bring these things into existence, and somebody will see them, and somebody will pass the lie detector test, and mm-hmm. there might even be. He doesn't say this, but there may be some tantalizing physical evidence that only goes so far. But he's really suggesting that there's this way that we can populate our world mm-hmm. with these quasi-spiritual demonic beings that only like get, magic, yeah. Yeah, it is magic. And they only get stronger through mm-hmm. more and more people believing in them. And then, you know, now you're left with like, well, then what is Hollywood? Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Juan Quiliano, do you know him? Oh, I love him. You know, that's what he talks about in his book on Renaissance magic, right? Is that it's just, it's just, it, we still have the same thing. Now we call it advertising. Right. Propaganda. Right? 
propaganda. And that's exactly what it is. Mind control. I mean, it's, and it's been so perfected in certain ways. Right. But the, but this is the generation of demons. Yeah. Yeah. And the cultural landscape is actually a currency of demons. Mm-hmm. You're buying them and you're. Oh yeah. Look, I mean, yeah. You're. Yeah. And on really in late as of late, <laughs> what was that thing? The, the Satan sneakers or whatever they were. Did you see that? No. <laughs> some, some hip hop artists on those names is marketing a sneaker that has actual drops of human blood. And he only made 666 pairs. I mean, just, just oh let's be obvious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're seeing artists actually, now that you mentioned that there are artists now that are making pieces of art completely out of human fluids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that um, who needs demons, right? We'll, yeah, we'll make our own, right? And we're we're it's really uh, robust, you know. It's an industry. It's a whole. And then, meanwhile, what Tom is pointing to is the good, the true, and the beautiful are still there, and being in the image of God, we are able to come into relationship with those things, right. And that's what I think, you know, for people like us, right? That's, you know, that's our task. And that's actually the, that's the, that's the resistance movement of our, of our time, you know? And, and, and I think, you know, how, how to expose the, how to expose the, the meaning the truth, beauty and goodness to, uh, to a culture that, that, that has these Satan shoes, right? You yeah. know? But, but I think, you know, it could be that we're, that we're, you know, I, I really think of ourselves as living in a dark age right now. And, but, you know, in those, in those dark, those times of darkness, there, there's a seed of light that flowers later. And I, I think Tom Berg is contributing to the, to this, you know, it's often called the, the age of the, the Maitreya Buddha, right? But the sitting Buddha. But, uh, and I think it, that's the, kind of the role of sociology. Yes. I mean, I sincerely believe that. In it. And, and this is a seedbed of sociology, which I certainly did not catch the first time I read it, you know, because I didn't have the word for it. But, but he drops, especially in... Uh, the 11th and the 19th letters, right? They're, they're kind of a, a precy of sophiology. But I think that that's, that's the, the thing to come, you know? That's, the, that's what John the Baptist calls from the future at this point, is, is to, to, re, to reintegrate the human person into a relationship with nature and, and, and the spiritual world. And I think that's the task for us right now. And he talks in the sun card, he, he really uses the term Mary Sophia. Mm-hmm. So he's really linking it to Mariology, but he really is a man with kind of a Russian soul. That's fair to say. I think his mother was Russian. Yeah. So he has this sort of soul constitution that's really open to this kind yeah. of thing. Um. Could you just sort of articulate 
Tomberg sociology in short? Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I can do it in short, but I can do it I mean, in chapter 19. I mean, he does it in a few different places. You know, uh, in the letter on force, he talks about uh, the various apparitions or appearances of the Virgin Mary to children. And, you know, I always tell, you know, I had a priest who said, yeah, look who Mary talk, appears to, kids. Uh, peasants, you ever see her? She doesn't usually appear to college professors or scientists, right? Right. Um, uh, and we said, we say, what do you say here? Uh, meetings of the Blessed Virgin are so numerous and so well attested that one must certainly at least admit the, their objective reality. I say at least because this does not satisfy the demands of my conscience. In fact, I would not I would not be entirely honest or frank with you, dear unknown friend, if I were not, were not to say what is an absolutely sure result in the, in the inner form of my consciousness of more than 40 years of endeavor and experience it is the following. One meets the Blessed Virgin inevitably when one attains a certain intensity of spiritual aspiration, when this aspiration is authentic and pure. The very fact of having attained a spiritual sphere which comprises a certain degree of intensity and purity of intention, puts you in the presence of the Blessed Virgin. This meeting belongs to a certain sphere, that is, to a certain degree of intensity and spirit, purity of spiritual aspiration, a spiritual experience just as the experience of having a mother belongs naturally to human family life on earth. It is therefore as natural for the spiritual domain as the having, fact of having a mother is natural in the domain of one's terrestrial family. The difference is that on earth, one can certainly be motherless, whilst in the realm of the spiritual, this can never happen. Therefore, the thesis I am advancing with 100% conviction is that every hermeticist who truly seeks authentic spiritual reality will sooner, sooner or later meet the Blessed Virgin. Bingo. And I think it's true. Yeah. And it's kind of, in a way, it's the cross of our times that the good, the true, and the beautiful are, in some sense, being crucified. But there at the foot of the cross is Mary Sophia. Right, and and that that's and what's also being uh, obfuscated or obliterated or challenged is this idea. I mean, this idea of the motherhood you know, spiritual mother or the mother, right? The archetype of the mother, right? It's being, it's been, dis, it's been diminished for, for the longest time. And, and even gender is now being obliterated, which is, uh, you know, I, this one of the things I would, he mentions it several times here. I would love to talk to Tom Berg about what's going on now, you know? see what he what it take what his take would be but i think you know uh, john milbank you know uh of radical orthodoxy you know he talks about the importance of gendered gendered biblical typology to coherence in the world and, and tom Berg, and this is what tom Berg later in the in the 19th letter you know when he introduces the the Lum, luminous holy trinity the father son and holy spirit uh, 
integrated with the mother of the daughter and the holy soul. I mean, that to me is prophetic. Yeah. You know, right. and 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 I think it's so essential to it's it's a healing for for the, all the I would say all the the troubles we are we are experiencing right now in Western civilization. But it really does raise the issue of <clears throat> spiritual purity, which is another very countercultural <laughs> idea. <laughs> I'm reminded of Steiner, I think, in his Gospel of John lectures, where he says, Sophia will actually be born in the human soul once it's achieved a certain level of purity, which is really identical to what you quoted mm -hmm. Tom Rick was saying a little while ago. And that's, um, that's, you know, so the idea of purity, then you can, you can get that by turning towards nature as well, because there's certainly no, you know, whereas human culture, we've really, we're manifesting the subhuman, the subnatural, but you can't really do that in nature unless you start doing human violence to nature with. Right. That does, and that's not purity, right? That's that's a, a desire to optimize and control, right? And and exploit, right? And in fact, in the 17th century, the beginning of the uh, scientific revolution, the language that the scientists, going back to Francis Bacon, would use for for dealing with nature was was a uh, torturing nature to make her divulge her secrets, which, which is what so offended uh, Goethe, which is why he went the opposite direction and talked about an approach to nature that was grounded in reverence. And worked with the, the powers of nature. The, the phenomenon before you, right? It's what phenomenology does. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very much in this text that we are to work with something that's given but not merely to replicate what already has been reinstantiated, but to actually advance the, the tradition. Yeah. Yeah, very, very foreign way of thinking now. Very. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe shift a little bit. All this controversy about the person of Valentin Tomberg. So Unlike you, I actually read the book, Anonymous Author. It was years before I knew it was Valentin Tom Brady. No, I didn't know either. Well, um, actually, no, I did know, but I didn't know anything about him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what do, you, what do you make of this person, given that he um, never really found a home in the conventional sense, an intellectual home? I mean, he did, but... Yeah, I don't th I th he was restless. Because I think, um, I mean, I think there's a danger in, uh, um, now if I had read only this, this book, I would, I would have, I, in fact, I had a dream when I first read the book, when I, before, I think even before I knew about his name, that I had a dream that he was a, he was a priest. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, then somebody said, no, he wasn't a priest who actually knew the story. And I told him about it. Um, uh, so we can see him, you know, so he starts off as a kid, basically, in Russia with this group studying the tarot, migrates, eventually 
for, at first uh, intellectually, but eventually physically toward uh, the anthroposophy. And then he gets kicked out of the, <laughs> the anthroposophical society. <laughs> Must have been doing something right. Mm -hmm. And then he, I think he had a flirtation with the Orthodox church for a minute and then ends up in the Catholic church. And, and they just ends up in England. And in fact, he lived in the same town that uh, Robert Powell grew up in. Oh, really? Robert Powell didn't know it. Yeah, Robert said, I had no idea he was, was in the town I grew up in. <laughs> and, uh, and but, he, but if you see in the covenant of the heart, or sometimes it's called Lazarus come forth, you know, you see he's already kind of disappointed in Vatican too. Right. You know, and he's and, and he seemed, I don't know if he has, you know, and I, a lot of uh, uh, esotericists who are attracted to uh, the Catholic Church have, have a kind of traditionalist strain. And he almost seems like a traditionalist at times. Um, but I think he is also, and I think in the Meditations on the Tarot, he, has, he takes an idealistic or archetypal view of the church and its structures. And I think by the time after Vatican II happened and he saw what was happening from Vatican II, and he's like, wait a minute, this is, wait, wait, you're giving, this is not good. And, and, and some people attracted to his work, you know, are also, who actually there are quite a few traditionalists who are really into Tomberg. But I, I tend to think that he, he, like Rudolf Steiner himself, was never, he was, he was always changing. It's always developing. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say, and I love to talk to him about what's been going on in the church for the last couple decades, you know, see where he's at, where he's at with that. Uh, as I'd like to talk to him about so many other things, but I think, I think he was, he was, he was carrying the, and I, and I, you know, try to trying to make him a traditionalist, but then reading the stuff on the mother of the daughter and the Holy soul. I mean, you got, you have to do some, uh, pretty fancy footwork to make that happen right right and i and i but i think like you just mentioned you know there's this idea of being grounded in a tradition but letting it grow right and i, and I think you know his introduction of sociology into that tradition you know which is why you know he's in the catholic section of the submerged reality and that's why i call it the submerged reality because it's something under the surface. Can you speak to how he's received by Catholics today? Most have no idea he exists. Still, yeah. uh, uh, a lot of people, you know, people I hear from who read my books, who, you know, then get turned on to, to Tomberg. Uh, it's interesting. And now, now, most of the people I know who are into Tomberg are, are, people who go to traditional Latin mass people. Um, others are just uh, kind of, there are a couple I had, in fact, I had a graduate student, she wasn't a graduate student, she was in a really advanced undergrad who wanted me to teach her a course on meditations in the tarot. So we had to think of some bogus name, like <laughs> current, current issues in Catholic theology so we could get it to pass through the, <laughs> the administration. <laughs> So, uh, uh, and she's, you know, a person who's really interested in the hermetic stuff. In fact, she's going to Harvard to, to work on 
uh, going to Harvard Divinity School to, to work on Hermeticism. Wow. Um, so it, it, it's out there. Um, well, it got such strong endorsements from such big people like Keating and Pennington and Bob Bazaar. It's mostly ignored. Yeah. Mostly ignored. Have you had the opportunity to read Christopher Bamford's little section on him in one of the new re-releases, his introduction? I think, yeah. Yeah, I found there's a couple of things in there that I found very interesting. Um, so Bamford, you know, in relation to anthroposophy, he makes it pretty clear that, you know, Tom Berg wasn't this cowboy just shooting from the hip, that he actually enjoyed a very pleasant, cordial relationship with Maria Steiner until the end. And that, uh, what is it, Elizabeth Breedy? Elizabeth Breedy, yeah. Yeah, her as well. And that he really just got caught up in the sort of poison tide in the aftermath of Steiner's death. Mm -hmm. And that he was, you know, he was, he was disposed of unceremoniously, not unlike Begman and yep. Um So I thought that was interesting. And then I thought that what, what I wanted to do as a result of reading that intro is that little section or that little period of time where he was, he was neither Catholic nor anthroposophist, at least not yet. And he did that course in the right. Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Um, have you looked through that? Parts of it. But I know, in fact, interesting, interestingly, you should mention it. Uh, just before we, we, we got online today, uh, I've been putting together the, the latest issue of Jesus, the Imagination, the journal I edit. And the, the theme for this, this year's volume is the Divine Feminine. And I sent it, well, Angelical Press is my publisher, and I sent it to, the, to them to, for typesetting. And one of the publishers has been translating, retranslating uh, Covenant of the Heart. And he said, why don't, why don't we put this part from Covenant of the Heart where it's the discussion of the luminous Holy Trinity? Why don't we stick this in there too? That's fantastic. But he's also translating the Lord's Prayer course. Uh, and so he sent me bits, bits and pieces over the years. He's been working on it for about five or six years. Uh, but it should be out pretty soon. But I, haven't, I have not read the whole thing. So but, but in there, that's, I think that's where he gives the Our Mother prayer. It is in there. Uh, yeah. Which I say every day. <laughs> I added it to the rosary a while ago. Fantastic. Um, and then have you read the early stuff, the early articles as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. When I was in graduate school, I read everything that was available by him in English. Yeah. And I really, the stuff he wrote on, on Russia, I found some of the best stuff I've ever read. It's just so, so, so insightful. Yeah. And I love this, I mean, the, the stuff, the studies of the old Testament too. I just, yeah, I've never got through it. That's kind of, I'm, I'm, the fire is getting rekindled now. Well, this has been um, better than good. Um, I was hoping that you might be willing to recite the Our Mother. Of oh, the Our Mother? Like, like, can I get stage fright? <laughs> Let's see if I can do it. Walk through it the whole nine yards. Our Mother, thou who art. No. I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. 
Do I have it written down? Okay. Um, well, I don't mean to put you on the spot. That's I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. Um, is it? It's in Covenant of the Heart, though, isn't it? Which it it is, but I think it. <laughs> Hold on a second here. Well, kind audience. Sorry. I thought I could find it. I couldn't. I might have it right here. Hold on a second. Uh, uh, there it is. I got it on my computer. Here we go. Ready? Yes. A second. No, now I remember it. No, no, I'm not <laughs> off the spot. Okay. Here it is. There we go. Okay. Let me just make this a little bigger so I can see it. Since I'm almost blind. Our, our mother, thou who art in the darkness of the underworld, may the holiness of thy name shine anew in our remembering. May the breath of thy awakening kingdom warm the hearts of all who wander homeless. May the resurrection of thy will renew eternal faith, even to the depths of physical substance. Receive this day the living memory of thee from human hearts, who implore thee to forgive the sin of forgetting thee, and are ready to fight against temptation, which has led thee to existence in darkness. That through the deed of the Son, the immeasurable pain of the Father be stilled, by the liberation of all beings from the tragedy of thy withdrawal. For thine is the homeland of the boundless wisdom and the all-merciful grace for all and everything in the circle of all. Amen. Amen. That's how it goes. Amen. That's amazing. And so she is in the underworld, but on on the presence. And that's, I mean, and like I think, and this is a great description of our current situation, right? That, and this is it goes back to the Gnostic myth of Sophia, where she's she's trapped, she's imprisoned, right? And I think that's, you know, but I, I've come to the realization that the Gnostics were right in a sense, but the real prison imprisonment is in our forgetting. Mm. So when we awaken to the Sophianic and to Sophia in the world, she awakens, or at least it feels like she awakens, but it's not really her, her awakening. It's our calling her forth. And I think to me, this is a, a gesture of absolute humility. Like, this is, I mean, this is really, if you really want to think about it, this is a, a Proverbs 8, right? With Sophia in, in the presence of God at the creation. And then I was, I, his, his, 
his uh, handmaid or his co-worker, right? But then when you you go to the Gospel of St. Luke, when the, when the angel appears to Mary, she says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. That's <laughs> it's basically saying, I remember, I'm Sophia. You know? And that, and that kind of, and that, our task is to, is to use that um, imaginative remembering now to awaken the Sophianic because our salvation depends on it. And there's a requisite humility on our part. Yeah. That's what the purity that he was talking about, right? Right. Yeah. There's a beautiful thing in the book that always from the very first time where he says the one, the one way to guarantee humility is to encounter a being of humility. That's it. Yeah, and once you encounter that being, then you can only be humble in relationship to that. Um, and that's what Jakob Burma, you know, the Lutheran mystic that he was, and who, who was basically uh, sociology restarts with him in the 17th century. And what he, he identified the virginity of, of, of Mary as her, as her Sophianic being. But for him, with the virginity was not the case of uh, 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 unbroken hymen. For him, the virginity was the purity of, of soul that, that, that she represented. And I, I, for him, also, that's when, when he calls, when we, we uh, come to that intuition of Sophia, it's the kiss. He calls it the kiss of Sophia, mm. right? But that's when we, when we receive that kiss, we, uh, we receive, you know, there's a, it's a special, this is what Conrad was talking about in her, with hermeticists. They meet the Virgin Mary. Right. And at the same time, Conrad really works very strong with remembrance. Yeah. The overcoming that remembrance is a, it's a resurrection of sorts, mm -hmm. an enlivening. There is some version of the Gnostic myth of Sophia that, or some commentator that has said something in relation to forgetfulness that the marriage of Christ and Sophia is an accomplished fact everywhere except in individual human souls. So it's, it's up to, that's where we are at yeah. the cutting edge of something that needs to happen. That's the purification of the will, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, the other thing that might be a good way to wrap things up is that Homburg is not a quietist. He's not merely about illuminism. Mm -hmm. He believes that the, the hermetic path marries those things. So there is this sort of being up in the in the in the Saint John of the Cross, the God that is his mode of presence is his absence. But at the same time, that that needs to come back into relationship with the intellect. So the word can be spoken or the book can be written. And that's the particular uh, vocation of the hermeticist. Is that fair? Um, the way I understand it, what he says is the vocation of the hermeticist is to, is to 
be present to those the traditions of the, the spiritual traditions of, of, of every religion, really. And naturally, he talks about natural religion, right? Which is natural religion is, is kind of an intuitive sociology. You know, we kind of naturally come to it. People even, and I, I, I see this um, with young people, even old people who are attracted to neo-paganism, for instance. And I know what they're. I know why they're attracted to that because they want to be connected to the world and to something that's real. And uh, with modernity, most of the Christian churches have distanced themselves from the world. It's become, in a way, urbanized, but uh, divorced from the physical world, the cosmos. Yeah. And those 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 neo pagan types want want that reconnection. They know that something that we need as human beings, and we certainly do. Uh, and I, but I think Tomberg, when he talks about the Hermeticist, let me see if I have it marked. I thought I did. Not right there. I didn't have it marked. It's fine. Uh, for this reason, this is in the magician. Christian Hermeticism, insofar as it is a human concern, initiates no one. Among Christian Hermeticists, nobody assumes for himself the title and function of initiator or master. For all, all our fellow pupils, and each is a master of each in some respect. And he says a little further. Dear unknown friend, Christian Hermeticism, therefore, has no pretension to, to rival either religion or official science. He who is searching here for the true religion or the true philosophy of the true science is looking in the wrong direction. Christian Hermeticists are not masters, but servants. They do not have the pretension, in any case somewhat puerile, of elevating themselves above the holy faith of the faithful, or above the fruits of the admirable efforts of workers in science, or above the creation of artistic genius. Hermeticists are not guarding the secret of future discoveries in the sciences. They do not know, for example, just as everyone at, at present is ignorant of it, the effect of remedy against cancer, etc. And he goes on. As he says, hermeticism is, is and is only a stimulant, a ferment or an enzyme in the organism of the spiritual life of humanity. In this sense, it is itself an arcanum or a mystery, right? And that's, you know, that idea of serving those things, it's art, religion, and science through, uh, I wouldn't call it the contemplative life, but I would call it a, a contemplative engagement with the world. Which, and this goes, and this is also in the 17th century Rosicrucianism, the idea of not drawing attention to yourself, but going about in the dress of everyone else in your in your, your country, you know, serving most of the same customs, but you're carrying this 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 light forward. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. I think you're a little frozen. No, there you go. Um, well, with that, let us draw it to a close. Um, there's so much more we could do here, and perhaps we should again. Um, okay. I'm really intrigued about the Lord's Prayer course. So, 
How can folks uh, folks find you and your work? Uh, you can go to the Center for Sociological Studies uh, on their website, the Center for Sociological Studies.com. Uh, look for Jesus the Imagination. And When's the next that's where I'll be? Pardon me? When's the next uh, edition coming out? I, 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 even while we're sitting here, we check. Um, probably in a few weeks, two or three weeks. I, I sent it all. They're typesetting it right now. I haven't seen the artwork yet, but it sh should be done. And by the the last the last section, I mean the last uh, part of the process is really quick. So, it'll just be a couple of weeks. And the folks can folks get it both in hard copy and digital format. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not in digital. I decided not to do digital. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> I'm fighting the resistance. <laughs> I want people to, because it can, it's an incarnation, right? Yeah. An incarnational process. And, and if it's just down in the ethers, it's not incarnated. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Michael Martin. Thank you, too. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com. <laughs>